Please do turn to the second book of Timothy in chapter 3, and our text is found in the first verse. This know also, that in the last days, perilous times shall come. My title this morning is Living in Perilous, Dangerous, Fierce, Strength-Depleting Times. The last two Lord's Days, the end of last year and the beginning of this, we've thought of the requirements that the Lord has of us. What does the Lord require of us? There are no exceptions, every one of us. The Lord has requirements for how we should live. We thought last week of how we ought to live and how we should obey the call of God, that's coming to salvation, obeying a call, and only when we've been regenerated, we've been given a new heart, can we obey his truth. Well, back through the years, when you look at the Church of Christ, down through 2,000 years since Christ died, there's been a cycle, up and down. Sometimes the church has been strong, sometimes it's been very weak. And we live in one of those times. That's no different to the Old Testament. There was good kings and there was good judges, and there was bad kings and bad judges for the nation of Israel. Cycles. What causes these cycles? It's the same in our own life. Have you known times of backsliding? Times when you feel the Lord is so near, you can almost touch him. In times when you feel so cold, you feel that the Lord is far away. Well, here is Paul writing from his prison cell in Rome, in Italy, AD 64-65. You can imagine him lying down at night, and he's thinking of Timothy. Timothy. Young Timothy. Young, weak Timothy. Maybe 20 years in his 20s. And Paul, the experienced pastor, he's anxious. Young Timothy, what will happen? There's an imbalance. Here is all the problems and the enemies and the difficulties. And there's a weak young man. And he says to him this. Let's look at verse 1 of chapter 3 to Timothy. This no, no, have no doubt whatsoever. Don't imagine this no also. What's the also there for? Well, at the end of chapter 2, he's been speaking of the devil and the spiritual warfare. He began chapter 2 by saying, My son... Be strong in the grace that is in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
He goes on to give counsel to Timothy, but at the beginning of chapter 3, he says, This know also. What's the also? Well, he describes that there is going to be a time, an era, an epoch. When is that time? Well, people sometimes say it it responds and corresponds to the whole of the era, the last days, when we call it the gospel age, when Christ has come the first time. That great interval of time, we don't know how long, from his first coming to his second coming. And that's probably right. The last days, the gospel age, all the way through those 2,000, 2,200, who knows? Maybe longer. But maybe there's another meaning. Maybe it also means that the time just before Christ will come again for the second time, the very last days, and in that time there will be a conspicuous, very obvious time which will be perilous, dangerous. I'll explain a bit more. I'm not one for judging the future. I think it's a very dangerous thing to say, oh, we must, must, must be in the last 10, 50, 100 years. Nobody knows the time. The Lord says that. The Lord will come like a thief in the night. Anybody that says it will be in such and such a year as the Jehovah's Witnesses used to do, they're utterly wrong. Nobody knows the time. But you might like to turn, you don't need to, to Matthew 16 and to verses 2 and 3, and this is what the Lord Jesus says. He says, when it's evening, and you say, tomorrow there's going to be fair weather, for the sky is red. Sky at night, what is the expression? Red sky at night. Shepherd's delight, it's an old wives' tale, so to speak, but maybe there's some truth in it. And in the morning, it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and overcast. O ye hypocrites, ye can discern the face of the sky. You look at the weather and you say, this is what's going to happen tomorrow. But you cannot discern. The signs of the times. I'm not asking you to make a prediction, and I certainly don't make a prediction, but when we look around us, in this country particularly, I think we can be fairly confident to say, these are perilous times. Perilous. The word means strength-reducing, times when Christian people will know weakness. It means dangerous, difficult times, hard to bear, troublesome. In Greek literature, classical Greek literature, the word perilous means dangerous as in animals. 
You see a snake, most of us, me particularly, will be fearful. You see a, a tiger, a lion. You don't hang around. You think now is the time to take action. It's also used about the dangerous seas, perilous seas, the waves, they're up and down. You don't hang around in a fishing boat when you see the storm coming. You take action, you put your life jacket on, you batten down the hatches, you make for land as quick as you can, you get to the rock. Perilous times. There's an imbalance between the forces of danger and darkness and evil and me, weak, fragile. And Timothy was being urged to take precautions, to take action. In the times of Spurgeon, C.H. Spurgeon, the great Victorian preacher, at the end of the 19th century, he preached up until 1892, but in his time he said, there is a foolishness going on. There are those who think that the world will get better and better and better until a great millennium, a thousand year reign. I don't believe in that. I believe that the book of Revelation speaks mostly figuratively. And when it speaks of a millennium reign, it's not a literal thousand-year reign. But Spurgeon said this, Apart from the second advent of the Lord, we are much more likely to sink into pandemonium than into a millennium. They thought that the world would get better, disease would disappear, and the world would only know better and better times. Some people foolishly think that today. There may be a revival. We pray that there will be. There might be one amongst the Jews, we don't know. There may be blessing. We long and pray that there will be, but the Lord knows. And the Lord tells us here that in the last days, perilous, dangerous times will come. The source of the peril and the danger is not war, it's not famine, it's not disease, it's not climate change. What is it? Well, it tells us here, verse 2. For men shall be lovers of their own selves. Here's the second point this morning. Perilous times. And the second point is what's the great cause? We have a list of 18 different features of these times, but I want to focus on the first one. For men and women and children, it's a general use of the word men, for humanity shall be lovers of them own selves. One of the signs, probably the cause of the 17 other characteristics, will be this. 
you will notice, and I believe we already do, for the last 50 or 60 years, this country at least, and many others in the West, you can say this. When you look at culture and society, and we'll be saying a lot more about this next Saturday, and one of the speakers will give us a review of the last 60 years of how we got into the mess that we're in in this country, we can say that the cause is this. Instead of men loving God, the apex of all our affections, we've turned it the other way round. Men have been become lovers of them own selves. It's the creed today. Love yourself. No one else win. Love yourself. Be good to yourself. You deserve it. That's what we hear. What a statement of truth. It flies completely at odds with the mantra, the manifesto of the day that we live in. Men shall be lovers of themselves instead of being lovers of God. I hardly need to prove this, but let me give you a few thoughts. This is what we could call the self-love generation. Children, teenagers, wake up. You've not known another time. I don't say this in a patronizing way, but you've got no contrast. You've got no benchmark. All you know is the 10, 15 years that you've lived in. But I can tell you it is different. The self-love generation. Who's ever heard of a selfie? Before the days of so social media, the idea of you taking a picture of yourself, it was absurd. It was mad. I know it wasn't very easy on the camera, but a selfie? What's that about? I can think of two particular people, not here. And I don't look at Instagram accounts that often. I do send out the notifications of services and what we're going to preach on, not the preacher, but the message. That's what we send out. But I see different accounts on social media. I can think of one teenage girl. She posts verses. Beautiful pictures of scenery. And there's always a thought of Christ. She's not thinking of herself. She's thinking of God. She's a lover of God, I can tell, because you look at what's in her heart, unless she's just fooling me. And I can think of someone else, not here. And 90% of what's on their social media is a picture of themselves, usually with a bottle or a glass or something saying that they're having a good time. Lovers of their own selves. The selfie generation. How did we get here? A lover of self. 
The need to be liked, to be followed, to be loved, to be appreciated, to be told, oh, you look so good today. You're so beautiful. Do you need that in your life? Is that the endorsement, the encouragement that you need? Now, don't get me wrong. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that we should hate ourselves. But Paul is saying to Timothy that in the latter times, it will be the opposite. People won't hate themselves. There will be lovers of their own selves. Well, where's the balance? Here's a verse for you, Romans 12, verse 3. Paul again, For I say, through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly, more often, instead of more highly than he ought to think. We're not to hate ourselves. That's wrong. God has given you a body. You don't hate the body. That's a wrong notion. That's a Roman Catholic notion that says you need to beat the body. The body is the cause of sin. No sin comes from within. We don't hate the body. We don't cut the body. We don't bruise the body. No. But we also don't love self. What Paul says is have a balanced view. Realize that you're a weak person. Realize that you are a fallen person. That you've got limitations. Again, I don't mention this other than to try to be helpful, but I can think of two conversations I've had. Again, it was with women recently. And one for an hour. All I could hear was about the exploits of her children. You say, well, she wasn't being proud herself. She was. It was this child. Oh, they've risen up to here. And this child. Oh, they've done this. And an hour later, all I'd heard was about her four children. Then I can think of another conversation, doing a visit in the last couple of weeks. And the elderly lady that I was visiting didn't want to speak about herself. She wanted to speak about the things of God, about the Lord, about hymns, about verses that had been precious to her. Lovers of God or lovers of self? Is this the generation that we're now in where people find themselves to be the center of their affection, the center of attention, there's a gravitational pull to me. Do you know this kind of love is the foundation of all depravity? People don't believe today that we are depraved. They don't believe in the fall. They believe in the rise of man, not the fall of man. But you know, that's where we go wrong. If you don't know that the heart is fallen, that we're born into sin, we're shapen in iniquity, your understanding of life and the world will be wrong from the beginning. 
Paul says, men shall be lovers of them own selves. Do you know what a Christian is? A Christian is somebody who wants self to decrease and Christ to increase in their conversation, in their choices, in the way they organize their, their days, the Lord's day, they want self to go down. And they want Christ to rise up. It's like a pendulum, isn't it? Like a, a swing. You know, you can't have both high. Either Christ is down low and you're high, or Christ is high and we're where we should be. We have a humble view of self. The Christian is the one who has voluntarily, willingly, not oppression, not by force, but willingly subordinated self. Think of the person, it's a bit old-fashioned now, isn't it? I remember doing it at work and a lady, she happened to be my boss in those days, I opened the door for her. And she looked at me and said, I don't need you to do that. But why do we have that manner and custom? Because we're teaching others and we're showing children in all the manners and the customs which are good, we're saying, put others first. It's respectful. Well, let's move on. We've thought of the perilous times. We've thought of the cause, which is the beginning of all these other things. But what are the effects? That's the third point this morning. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, and then we have a long list, and we haven't gotten very long to look at the list. The 18 features of which the first we've looked at, the others we can put perhaps into a group of 10. I'm going to spend the most time on the first. It says, they shall be covetous, covetous. Literally, it means a lover of things, possessions, houses, cars, jewelry, money, things that I can touch, I can hold, I can be proud about. Do you notice that's the consequence? Because in these dangerous times, as the Lord Jesus is coming nears, and we become obsessed with self, as a consequence, we will become lovers of money, things, possessions, materialism. Let me tell you a story about a woman. It was in the US in the 1990s. Her name was Brenda Blackman. That's irrelevant. But she taught a course. And the course had this title, it explains everything. How to marry rich. How to marry money. She charged 30 pounds for this course, quite a lot of money in those days, and she would give hints 
as to how you could search through a checkbook that was lying around. We don't even have those today, hardly. But how you could flick through your prospective mate's checkbook. And you could work out what their income was, roughly. You could look around their flat or their house. You could search and look and take the tips. And you could work out whether this person was a good catch. In the course of her lessons, there were six in the series for £30. And she had thousands of people attending she got the people to repeat this phrase. I want to be rich. I deserve to be rich. I am rich. I was born to be rich. In one class, she was asked by one of the students, if you can call them that, she was asked by this lady, is it okay to settle for a man who only has an income of $80,000 a year. And the lady, Brenda Blackman, replied, No way! Set your sights much higher. That's not enough. She was asked another question. What about compatibility? Shouldn't you choose a friend, a mate, a prospective wife or husband that you're suited Maybe opposite or complementary or something like that. What about love? She said, oh, there's no need for any of those. Once you've found the big checkbook, once you've found somebody that can give you wonderful things day in, day out, love is the easy bit. Well, I can tell you that. My experience that loving is not easy because our nature loves self and doesn't love the other. And the Christian view of marriage is that we love the other and we sacrifice and we serve and we come second or third. Lovers of money, covetous, boasters, Proud. These are attitudes of heart, and they are the consequences of loving self. We boast, we're proud about self. Blasphemy. That's using words which God hates about himself instead of having control over the tongue, because God doesn't matter. It's all about me. What about this one? Come down to this. Disobedient to parents. That's really a bigger term. It's about the rejection of authority. We have a society today which is anti-authority, anti-establishment, anti-family. And children are growing up and they're told you can do what you like. You see on the estates of Bedford children as young as eight, nine, just roving around. The parents don't know where they are. The children can be up to anything, running drugs, dealing with knives, 
Why is that? Because men have become lovers of their own selves. Instead of loving their children. Instead of loving God. And they've said to their children, you don't need to obey. You don't need to come back at a certain time. You don't need to tell me where you are. There doesn't need to be any boundaries because there is no truth. There's no right. There's no wrong. It's up to the individual. That's what children are taught in school. Your opinion counts. Your truth, my truth. Isn't that the generation we live in? Perilous times. Disobedient to parents. Just think of what the police have to deal with today. That's why they wear those cameras now. You see a scene in the high street. I saw one on the bookstall. A man was going through the town on a scooter. He could have knocked somebody over and hurt them. And the person whose job it was to stop them said, you are fined. That's a hundred pound fine because you're doing something you're not allowed to do. And within a few minutes, there were six people taking pictures and video because somebody was breaking the law and they wanted to post about the unfairness and reject authority and demonstrate disobedience to what is the law of the land. Well, there's a long list here. We haven't got time. Let's look at verse 5. Here is another term. Having a form of godliness, an outward appearance of religion, but denying the power. That's sham faith. That's not true faith. True faith has power over sin, not our own power, but the power of Christ living within us. We don't have a form of godliness. We have a love of godliness. We have evidence of godliness. And we have the substance of godliness. Well, we could go through all this list we will do it another time, but let me come to conclusion. How should we live in this generation? Well, we're told in verse 5, turn away from those that love themselves. Don't speak with people that are obsessed with themselves. Don't listen to them. Don't spend time with them. Witness, yes. Live a good profession before them. But don't choose them as your friends. Don't choose them instead of spending time with a godly person. Don't spend the Lord's Day listening to Hollywood pumping into your life and your ears those that love themselves. What's Hollywood all about? Putting people upon a pedestal. People that love themselves. Look at the Oscars. What's that all about? Me. 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 From such, turn away. Secondly, love the very opposite of this list. 
Love that which is humble. Let me pick a few out. Love those that have self-control over their lips. Love those that love what is good. Love those that never blaspheme. Love those who are not high-minded, they're lowly-minded. Love the opposite. Pursue the opposite. Thirdly, contend earnestly for the faith. That's what Jude was all about. That's what he said in his day. Contend for the faith. The faith which is such a contrast to the things in this list. And finally, as we thought in the last two weeks, I hope to start a series in two weeks' time on the seven sayings of Christ on the cross. We'll have the seven churches on a Bible study and God willing running at the same time. The seven sayings of Christ on the cross. We will meditate much about Christ. But here's my final point. Walk with your God. Don't walk with the world. Walk in the world, but don't be of it. Walk with your God. Dwell with him. Commune with him. Speak often with him. Spend time worshipping him at every opportunity. Come to the prayer meeting as often as you can. Isn't that how we should live? In a perilous, dangerous, brutal time, which will weaken you and me, unless we turn away, love the opposite characteristics, contend for the faith, and walk closely with our God. This know also, that in the last times, as the Lord Jesus' second coming draws near, perilous times shall come. We are living in those times today, here in Bedford. May the Lord help us all.